Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. On Sunday, August 15th, Taliban fighters seized Kabul, following quickly on the evacuation of the last remaining American troops. And in the days since, the scenes of desperate Afghans trying to flee the country on outbound aircraft have elicited parallels with the fall of Saigon in 1975. But my guest on the podcast this week, Canadian journalist and book author Terry Glavin, paints a more complex picture of what is now happening in Afghanistan. Rather than comparing it to Saigon 1975, Glavin sees it as something that looks almost like a plotline from Game of Thrones, with various warlords still vying for influence from power centers both inside and outside Afghanistan. Glavin is the author of Come from the Shadows, The Long and Lonely Struggle for Peace in Afghanistan, a 2011 book based on his extensive reporting in Afghanistan, where he personally met and interviewed some of the power brokers you'll be hearing him discuss in this podcast. By his telling, the story of Afghanistan over the last two decades hasn't just been the story of a destructive Taliban insurgency against the government, but also a constructive intellectual insurgency led by urban liberal reformers, fighting back against the country's long and well-embedded culture of violence and extremism. Glavin doesn't just trace the problem to militant Islam, but also to the often violent Pashtun tribal culture that spans the Pakistan-Afghanistan border in the southern part of the country. He also heaps plenty of blame on American administrations, including not only Obama's and Biden's, but also Donald Trump's. It was Trump's Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, remember, who oversaw the February 2020 deal with the Taliban, under which the United States completed the evacuation of its forces. Other figures you will hear Glavin discuss include Zalmaid Khalizad, the Afghan-American diplomat who served as the special representative for Afghanistan reconciliation at the State Department, Mullah Abdul Ghani Baradar and Mullah Omar, the founders of the Taliban, Ashraf Ghani, the Afghan president who fled the country last week, Ahmad Shah Massoud, the legendary northern Afghan guerrilla commander killed two days before 9-11, and his son Ahmad, who is still very much alive. Also, Amrullah Saleh, the Afghan vice president who now claims the title of Afghanistan's rightful president, and Abdullah Abdullah, the veteran Afghan politician who, since 2020, has led the High Council for National Reconciliation and still might be a player in Afghanistan politics. Now, I realize I'm throwing a lot of names at you, but in my interview with Glavin, he cites these figures by name somewhat casually, and I wanted to give you a chance to digest them before you hear the conversation. One more thing I should mention, I spoke to Terry Glavin on Tuesday, August 17th, when the news of the Taliban entry into Kabul was still fresh. Much has happened since then, and by the time you hear this, some details we discuss may not be current. With that said, here are excerpts from my conversation with celebrated Canadian author and journalist Terry Glavin. 
you must still know people in Afghanistan. Uh, have you been in contact with them? Oh, goodness, yes. Goodness, yes. Are they still in the country or have they fled to other places? A little bit of both. Some are trying to get out. I mean, I've kept in touch uh, regularly since the book came out. And I've written about Afghanistan routinely uh, over the last 10 years. Part of it is just checking in to see if everybody's okay, trying to refer people to the right probably useless email addresses and phone numbers and forms to fill out to uh, get into Canada. I hardly slept in the last two or three days writing letters of recommendation and support. I've got I've got a couple more letters to write tonight just helping trying to help people get out. But my main interest is in finding out what the hell's going on. I have to say, as you know, I really do lament how shoddy the mainstream, God, I hate that word, the mainstream media's coverage of this catastrophe has been. You know, everybody's fixated on the, the, the sort of Bay of Pigs, Saigon aspect of the last three or four days. You know, I, I was rooting for Joe Biden and all that stuff. But I, I have to say, uh, the man is a liar. And I'm very upset with the kind of lies that he's told about uh, what's been going on there. But before we get into that, was there ever a period in the last 20 years when you could point to an American leader and say that is the baseline of sound policy in Afghanistan? Do you mean military policy? Yeah, although when you're fighting any kind of counterinsurgency, politics and nation building and military, they're all mixed together, right? You know the Americans, bless them. They're good at basically two things, wasting money and blowing stuff up. And we need them for these sorts of things. But I would say Stanley McChrystal, I'd say he'd, he'd be my guy. One of the early military leaders, if, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And of course, McChrystal, ironically, he was fired by Obama because Rolling Stone magazine had reported that somebody in his retinue, uh, during a conversation with a Rolling Stone reporter at a bar in Paris had said some uncharitable things about Joe Biden. But no, I would say Stanley McChrystal, and I think this is important, actually, it's good that you brought this up, because McChrystal, he said, you know, all of this stuff about counterinsurgency, or is it counterterrorism, it's all very interesting. But really, our comrades, our allies in Afghanistan, the young people, the, the women, uh, the liberal Democrats, the, the intelligentsia, and there is such a thing, these people, the anti-Taliban forces, that's the insurgency. That's the insurgency. The war, if we can, I, it's ridiculous to call it a war, but let's call it a war, in Afghanistan occurred mainly in the south, in the Pashtun belt. And in that, it's not that we, you know, that we don't have comrades in the Pashtun belt. But McChrystal, he, he basically took a, a, a several pages out of Mao, Mao Zedong's theory on guerrilla war never steal so much as a needle and thread from the people. You know, if you're driving your hum Humvee through a little village and you accidentally break a branch off a tree, fruit tree uh, on somebody's property, you stop, you pick it up, you apologize, you pay for it. Defend the people. Don't worry so much about attacking the Taliban and chasing after them and stuff. Defend the people. Par part of the problem from a Canadian point of view, when you talk about Afghanistan, people think about Panjwai. People think about Tarrant Cot. That's the nastiest bit of bandit country in all of Central Asia. That's way down there in the Pashtun belt. 
the Pashtuns were about a third of the Afghan population. And, you know, there's a, there are valleys in there where I remember there's a wonderful little story told by an American soldier. It's only about 10 years ago. He was with a, an Afghan Kandak, a, a sort of a military little platoon, moving through a valley, and they'd never seen a white guy before, and they thought he was a Russian. They didn't <laughs> even know the Russians had left. Around the same time, I'm a real total public opinion poll, public opinion survey nerd. And I think I've got about 24 different surveys now, of Afghan public. They're the most studied people in Central Asia, okay? Because everybody wants to know what they think. And 10 years ago, I'm going to say maybe nine, eight or maybe not 10, there was a poll conducted of fighting, fighting aged males in Kandahar and Helmand. And something like 87% of them had never heard of 911. They knew absolutely nothing about what happened in New York that day, knew absolutely nothing about Al Qaeda and all the stuff that we talk about. But when you walk, the streets of Kabul, you know, you'll meet all kinds of really interesting intellectuals. So we do have a really colored view of what Afghanistan is about and what it's like. The last Asia Foundation poll, I think it was last year, 87% of Afghans have absolutely no sympathy for the Taliban whatsoever. In all of the polling that I have come across, and this goes back to, I think they started pretty intensely in 2002, Overwhelming support among Afghans for the NATO intervention across the board among the more conservative people and the liberal left and journalists and so on. Most Afghans are perfectly happy with the idea of women working outside the home, running for public office. Talibanism is a Pashtun phenomenon. It's uh, an iteration of deobandist whack job jihadism. And the Diobandi strain of Sunni Islam is a very hardcore, austere brand of, of Islam, as I understand. That's how it's evolved, yeah. And it's uh, it kind of blended with Wahhabism right. uh, to produce Talibanism, which is a recrudescence of something that Afghans have suffered for a very, very, very long time, a kind of Pashtun extremism or supremacism. I worked on a book project, it seems like a long time ago, but with someone who I think you know, Christopher Alexander. Oh yeah, Chris is a good guy. Canada's former ambassador to Afghanistan. And, and his book, plug your book in the introduction, but his book is called The Long Way Back, Afghanistan's Quest for Peace. Yeah, I know it. I, we've, we've been on the same panels together. And throughout the book, his focus was on, on the role, as he saw it, the cynical role of Pakistan in stirring up trouble in southern Afghanistan. Yes. The thesis always hung out there that you have Pashtun, tribal Pashtuns on both sides of the Pakistan-Afghanistan border. That border, as you know, is fairly arbitrary. Is it the case, and this has always been a theory, that the destabilizing factor there is that there really is one big Pashtunistan, if you want to call it that, and eventually that's what that area is going to become. It's something that a lot of Afghans don't like to talk about out loud, but they sure talk about it. I was just talking about it again with the editor of Hashti Sob. Uh, it's a liberal daily in, in, in Kabul. There's more talk now about partition. Nobody's really wanted to talk about that because Afghans are, you know, everyone's all a tribal society. They only support where money and power goes and blah, blah, blah. Well, you could describe the United States that way. There is this deep pathology embedded in the Pashtun culture. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I love Pashtuns. Some of my best friends are Pashtun. But it's just there. And it's been there for a long, long time. That history is a very, very interesting history. 
The worst outbreak of it before Talibanism occurred in the 1930s. This is just a little digression here. At the time, the Third Reich was the country with the largest diplomatic legation in Kabul. If you've ever seen any of the old photographs, you know, you see the Afghan soldiers with Nazi helmets and all that kind of stuff. And Ariana Airlines from the idea of the of Arianism. Oh. Yeah. The Jews were very, very big and important. For instance, the, the one of my favorite places in Afghanistan is a little village called Balk. Used to be the capital of the Greco-Bactrian Empire, the Vatican of the Nestorian Catholic Church, one of the holiest places in Buddhism. One of Adam's sons, Seth, is said to be buried there. Center of Zoroastrianism, let's see, birthplace of, pardon me, uh, Rumi, the greatest poet Islam ever produced. And uh, the Nazis decided this was such an interesting and special place. We have to destroy every trace, the temples and the statues, in order to elevate the, the Pashtun presence, the Pashtun element that was there. And they had plans to build a you know, a huge city with arrondissement, like, like Paris, laid it all out. And Momand was the, was the Afghan champion of all of this. And in, in the north of Afghanistan today, it is wholly uncontroversial to understand Talibanism as a kind of a recrudescence of that Pashtun supremacism that the Nazis funded and sponsored back in the 1930s. So when we call these people theocratic fascists, Okay, we're not making it up. That was a little digression, wasn't it? <laughs> what we were going on about was where Afghans are really at. What's the end game? I can't see Afghans accepting, not for a long time, the idea of partition. That would be tragic because there would be, you know, displacement and movement of millions of people. And it would be like the partition of India. It would be very nasty. But yes, the Pakistanis have played, it's their hidden hand in, in almost almost all of this. And their agenda, you know, people describe it as strategic depth. It certainly is. What they want is they want to be able to control everything between the Indus River and Uzbekistan. They also don't like India's influence in Afghanistan. Afghans love Indians. They love India. Uh, one of the first things that you started to see after the fall of the Taliban, people would start to get digital technology and everybody started downloading Bollywood movies. India's contributions to Afghanistan have been really warmly appreciated. In fact, India just announced yesterday that they were almost throwing open their borders to Afghan refugees. They're not requiring Afghans to have visas and stuff like that. So yeah, Chris Alexander's quite right. I'm interested what you think will happen in the short term, like the next few days and weeks. People are thinking there's going to be some kind of horrible bloodletting where anyone with any connection to the ancien regime is going to be gunned down in the streets. Is that a realistic scenario? No, not in the short term. Yes, it's Saigon. Yes, it's the Bay of Pigs. You know, it's at that level of American humiliation, whatever. But the main thing to keep your eye on is the February 2020 deal that was struck between Mike Pompeo and essentially Af uh, Pakistan. But the signatures on that deal, the so-called Trump peace deal with the Taliban, were Khalilzad, this bothersome, notoriously dim peace envoy that's been floating around Afghanistan since 2002, and Malabaradar. Now, Malabaradar is a co-founder of the Taliban with Mala Omar. 
the Americans got a little bit embarrassed by the degree to which he was sort of roving about Quetta, you know, in his limousine. So they basically said to the Pakistanis, look, could you please just put him in prison for us? Just arrest the guy. So they did, and they put him in some nice prison. And then in 2018, uh, the Americans went to the Pakistanis and they said, we want you to spring him. We want you to spring Malabaradar. We like the guy. We've been talking to him. You know, our guys and your guys, we've, they've been talking to him. He's smart. So put, get him out and we'll make him the head of the Taliban peace team, negotiating team. He, he's been in Qatar, by the way, in Doha. I understand he arrived in Kandahar about seven hours ago. He's probably going to make a triumphant entry into Kabul in the next few days. Back in the day, uh, the Obama administration would talk about it as reconciliation. We have to reconcile. Biden at the time, he opposed the surge. And he was all about, you know, troops out and all that stuff way back then and really got married to the, this idea of reconciliation. Anyway, 2018, February, I think it was, the Taliban and the Trump administration strike a peace agreement. OK, and what that agreement said, among many other things, was that uh, the Americans committed to the Talibs. They could basically kill as many Afghans as they want. Just don't make it as, don't make it so obvious. All right. Reduction of violence, that sort of thing. And of course, they never did. In fact, they amped up, they ramped up violence against Afghans and against the Afghan national forces massively. And the Taliban said, OK, I tell you what, what you've got to do is you've got to tell Ashraf Ghani, here's a list of 5,000 of our guys that they've arrested. You have to tell him to open those prisons and let our guys go. And the, and the Americans said, well, geez, what are we going to get for that? And, and the Taliban said, you want to leave? You'll be out of here in no time. Trump said, what did Trump originally say? May, I think, of this year. And the Taliban said, fine, uh, we won't shoot any Americans in the back on the way out. But, uh, you know, you, you, we're, we're taking over. And, uh, you know, if you wanna, want us to sort of show up and pose for photographs uh, at the Troika meetings in Moscow or at the leaders meetings in Tehran or in these meetings in Doha, yeah, we'll show up. We'll pretend to negotiate. And we won't shoot you guys, but you got to be out of here and you got to give us those prisoners. The Americans went to Ghani and they said, this is the deal. You are going to form a government, a new government, tear up your constitution. Too bad about this picayune little democracy that you've got going for yourself here, uh, that you've been trying to cobble together for the last 20 years against all odds. Never mind all that. That's all very interesting. You're going to form a coalition government with the Taliban, okay? It's called power sharing, and you're going to do it right quick. At one point, Trump actually threatened to pull all funding from uh, Afghanistan unless Ghani went along with it. So yeah, Ghani opened up all the prisons, and those guys were among the uh, vanguard of the Talibs that took over Kandahar, uh, and of course, they opened the prisons there. The Americans were you know, heading out so quickly that they abandoned the largest base in Afghanistan, Bagram, in the middle of the night. They didn't even have the decency to tell the Afghan national security forces that they were leaving. The guys get up in the morning. The Yanks have gone. They didn't even leave the keys to the fleets of Humvees they left behind. <laughs> Very cunning, I think, the Taliban strategy this time encircled the cities from the countryside. And one provincial capital after another began to fall. If you're a regular listener to the Quillette podcast, you'll be familiar with BetterHelp, one of our original advertisers. 
Well, thanks to everything that's happened since early 2020 and the stresses that the pandemic has put on everyone, the online therapy services at BetterHelp are more relevant and in demand than ever. BetterHelp will help you unlock the tools you need to help with motivation, depression, anxiety, battling your temper, stress, dealing with insecurity in relationships or at work, whatever you need. Especially at a time like this, no one should be anxious about admitting that they're going through normal human struggles, because you deserve to be happy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. And you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't feel comfortable doing so. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. And Quillette Podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash Quillette. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Quillette. Thanks to BetterHelp for their sponsorship. And now back to the Quillette Podcast. Am I right that the Afghan military had, I guess until a few weeks ago, 300,000 men in uniform? This would make it at least on paper, one of the largest militaries in the world. That includes the police force. You know, half of these guys are, you know, they're down from the hills and they applied for a job and they're on the payroll. Great people, though. I get my back up a little bit, Jonathan, on this issue. You wrote that they were left with nothing to fight for. What did you mean by that? That's right. What I meant was that the Americans had sold them out. The only thing difference between Trump and Biden is that Biden sort of said, "Okay, well, actually, we're going to do it by the end of August. So by the end of August, you have to have this government in place. You have this sort of power sharing deal with the Taliban in place. The Talibs began to surround the cities. They terrorized people. 3,000 came out of Pakistan about 10 days ago, straight from the Pakistan border into Jalalabad. Jalalabad was left with heaps of dead people in the streets. You never hear about that, of course. And so, you know, the penny began to drop. The command structure was ridiculous. They'd been fighting, uh, in some cases, in these remote outposts for weeks on end. Their ammo was running out. Their food was running out. Their pay wasn't even being electronically transferred to the bank accounts that their wives and dads were, were controlling. And they just realized, you know what? We're fighting for this horrible Taliban, Jamaati Islami government that our people didn't even elect. So what the hell are we doing it for? So they completely sapped the morale of the Afghan forces, who, by the way, have lost 66,000 men in uniform in this struggle, okay? The last five, six years, I think the Americans lost 150 guys. There were only 2,400 soldiers in Afghanistan, Yankee soldiers, when Biden was elected. So I think it's really horrible the United Nations came to us, 2003, United Nations Security Council. Okay, we're all in. We're going to put this thing together, the International Security Assistance Force. 53 countries around the world had soldiers in Afghanistan. It wasn't just the Yanks. And uh, we made a commitment. This was the, you know, NATO's largest effort outside the European and North American theater in its history. This is an area that was about a third of the country was refugees. A third of the country was starving to death. And the final third was just living in fear and cowering against the, the Taliban. It, the whole damn place looked like Dresden, Jonathan. And it's a country about the size of Germany and France. There's 38 million people there now, 
Okay, the average age of an Afghan is 19 and a half years old. They haven't seen the Taliban. They watch Afghan Idol on TV. And this is what we're leaving behind, the degree of the betrayal. So this is all about the will to fight. That's really what this is about. There's a couple of reasons why the ANDSF seems to have just melted into the population again. That's the Afghan military. Yeah, about 100,000 of them have just put on civilian clothes and just quietly walked away. A lot of them have, they're just clocking in their shifts every day, uh, keeping their heads down, waiting for the Taliban boss to come in and, 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 and introduce himself. But up in the Panjir Valley now, Ahmed Shah Massoud's son is up there, okay? Up there with him in the Panjir Valley is Amrullah Saleh. Amrullah Saleh, the legendary spy chief, uh, lieutenant for, for the Shaheed Ahmed Shah Massoud, located Osama bin Laden within 10 kilometers of where he was eventually found in Abbottabad. He has declared quite reasonably that now that Ghani's gone, the constitution of Afghanistan says if the president becomes incapacitated, leaves the country, the job goes to the first vice president of Afghanistan. I'm the first vice president of Afghanistan. That makes me the president. I'm the president of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. Kneel before me. And he's right. What you're describing sounds like we're back in September 2001. In some respects. It's a new northern alliance. Or remember when the Mujahideen took Kabul and kicked out the Soviets, the first thing they did is they started fighting amongst each other. Is that what happens? Aha. This brings us to what motivates Ghani. Okay. Now, a lot of people in Afghanistan have come to hate Ashraf Ghani. And I can understand why. Because he's been caught up in all of this ridiculous peace talks nonsense. He's been pushed around by the Americans. He was forced to open the prisons and he did it. Ghani is a nerd, okay? He's an economist, supposed to be the head of the World Bank. You know, he's a smart guy. You know, he's not kind of a Michael Collins or Che Guevara figure. And he's a wonderful and interesting, sophisticated guy. I spent a day at his house once. He's got 32 rooms in his house. Each of the rooms is kitted out in the local rug designs and architecture of Afghanistan's 32 provinces, right? I like him. And he basically made a decision, and it's not clear exactly when he made it. I think he actually made it in the last, I think he made it actually last Friday, that he just couldn't bear the idea of what you just referred to occurring again. Warlordism, civil war, craziness, terrorism, mayhem. And I think that's actually been motivating him all along. He's, in fact, I remember talking to him about this. He had this anxiety about him. You know, we have to figure out some way of bringing in uh, the sons of the soil down from the hills, <laughs> um, you know, otherwise, and to do it in such a way that will not cause everybody else in Afghanistan to, to reach for their AK-47s and see it all kick off again. Ghani, he's no longer in the country. Uh, I'll tell you where he is. I don't think it's been reported anywhere in any European newspaper or North American newspaper. This is directly related to what happens next. He is in Oman. What happened was... There was seven hours on his daytimer, his planner. It was empty. He had a meeting with two guys. The next thing you know, he's at the airport. It was a Cam Air flight. It's a commercial airliner. He's flying to Tajikistan. They won't let him land in Tashkent. They're freaked out. You know, Central Asia is dominated by China, Iran, and Russia. They don't know what to do. So he flies down to a border town, and I think it actually might be on the Uzbek side 
of the border. It's very near the border with Afghanistan. They allow him to stay there that night. There's a separate arrangement that happens around the same time where a lot of the lads that uh, are committed to the resistance in some fashion, and they don't want to see a whole bunch of hardware falling into Afghan hands. I'm going to say this happened last Friday, I think it was. It must have been, I think, about 36 aircraft, 22 fixed wing, the rest were helicopters. Hundreds and hundreds of guys, airmen, special ops guys, they fly across the border into Tajikistan. I don't have any good sources in Tashkent. There's some story about an, an accident in the air. There's another story about fighter jets being scrambled because what the hell is going on? Is this an invasion? And it might have been an arrangement that Ghani made, you know, here's a whole bunch of hardware. You've just increased your air force by a factor of five. You need to help us. Didn't work out. The Saudis, the Emiratis intervene. They say, look, you know, the Sultan of, uh, of, of Oman, uh, you know, Mus Muscat is a nice place in place in the summertime. So off he goes to Oman. So you've got Ghani is in Oman. You've got Amrullah Saleh saying, I'm the president now. And he's in the Panjir Valley. You've got half the, the Masudists up in the Panjir Valley with a bunch of hard guys. And they've got some choppers in there. OK, but it's not like the old days because the Taliban, they're very, very cunning this time around. There was no way they were going to lose the north. They wanted to seize the north first. They couldn't see a repeat of what had happened before. So Badakhshan, you know, all of the Parwan, all the provinces around the Panjir, way up in the mountains, they're all surrounded. So it's weird, okay? Meanwhile, Abdullah Abdullah, you know, he's run for president two or three times now, I guess. And he's always like five mysterious votes away from winning. First, it was Karzai, he got totally robbed. Abdullah was in, in Doha, Qatar, okay? on Friday. And uh, he flies back on Saturday. And then on Sunday, everything goes, goes sideways, goes up and Ghani's gone. And uh, so he's got put together something called, I think it was the High, the High Council of something or other, with Hamid Karzai, talk about, you know, opening the crypt, <laughs> seeing what you can find, and Gulbadin Hekmatyar the nastiest shadow that was ever cast on the dust of Central Asia since the days of Genghis Khan. This was the guy who's basically running a kind of subunit of Al-Qaeda, which sort of like a criminal syndicate that went back and forth across the border. Yeah, well, he, I mean, he's been everything, right? I mean, he started out as a, a, a Maoist and a drug dealer. He got expelled from Kabul University and chased out of town I think he killed one of his, some guy who was running against him for student council president. Real fun people. Anyway, uh, he was the, uh, the, the best endowed financially and with arms by Pakistan among the seven warlord groups that Pakistan established uh, uh, after the uh, Russians were uh, left. And uh, the Iranians, I think, had eight different group. The Chinese were doing it. It wasn't just the Americans. Everyone says, oh, the Americans created the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. The Al-Qaeda had nothing to do with the Americans. Taliban wasn't even around then. Um, uh, and everybody else was. I mean, you know, Iran, China, the States, uh, Pakistan, of course, was the main, the main broker of all of this mischief. Um, and in the, 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 the irony here is that Hekmatyar was so horrible that the Pakistanis decided that he was just a little bit too much for them. Very hard to control. 
So what do they do? They call up Mala Baradar and Mala Omar and those guys. And they say, well, you guys are in those madrasas up there in the, the tribal areas. And you're always talking about jihad and all that kind of stuff. Why don't you, uh, we'll give you a bunch of guns and money and you can go take over Afghanistan. Paradoxically, that's how the Taliban was founded. You know, the Americans were talking about how they had to reconcile with all, all these warlords. Heck, Machar was the last guy to come down from the hills. I think it was Karzai who reconciled with him about five, six years ago. He, you know, he was in Iran for a while. Hezbi Islami was his outfit. And so, you know, the Afghan government got saddled with this guy, Gulbuddin Hekmatyar. Could be that Abdullah Abdullah is betting on having a couple of hard men around him like that, which will make it easier for him to negotiate himself into some kind of a power-sharing government with the Taliban. This is definitely not what Amrullah Saleh is interested in. It's definitely not what the Afghan people are interested in. But, you know, what the Afghan people want has never really counted much in all of this. You've got Justin Trudeau here in Canada saying that he's not going to recognize a Taliban-dominated government. But what other options does the international community have? You, you literally have Taliban soldiers occupying the ARG. Yeah. Afghanistan's seat of power. Well, thank you, Uncle Joe Biden. Well, okay, but do you eventually just have to start doing business with a Taliban state? No, there's no reason to do that anymore. There's, there's any reason to do business with Hamas. The United Arab Emirates, Qatar, and the Saudis, and, the, and Pakistan were the only governments on earth to ever recognize the Taliban government in the 90s, okay? By the time of 911, even the Saudis and the Qataris and the, uh, the Emiratis had bailed. It was only Pakistan. Afghanistan's seat at the United Nations was occupied by the Islamic State of Afghanistan, not the Islamic Emirate, a guy named Burhanuddin Rubani. I really liked him. We got along very well. He was the president for a time. He was assigned to be the head of the High Peace Council, uh, and the Taliban uh, assassinated him. Some guy walked in with a bomb in his turban. And if, I don't know, maybe Abdullah's thinking, well, I, you know, I'm the next guy. I don't want to be that guy. But this has been, for, de for a decade now, this be has been a, a succession of American administrations pushing the envelope as far as they could against the, the inevitable public revulsion to force the embryonic democracy in Kabul to accommodate the Pakistani-sponsored Taliban in the South, to satisfy the Pakistanis, to get this strange country out of everybody's hair. So now we have, uh, you know, it's kind of a standoff. We recognize, like I say, you know, for those four, five, six years, we recognized, we recognized uh, Rabbani's government, the Northern Alliance government at the UN. Uh, um, now the world has changed. Maybe, you know, obviously there's a de facto recognition already by China, Russia, and Iran. They've made it very clear, perfectly happy to deal with these people. They won't scruple, and neither will we. And the Americans, for the most part, and even the European Union, are treating this as a fait accompli. So, you know, whether they say we're recognizing them or not, they've basically been offered de facto recognition. But I, I do think the events of this past weekend will cause a lot of people in the democratic world a lot of revulsion and disgust. Soleil, I haven't talked to him directly. I've talked to some of his people. What they're planning for, I think, is they're anticipating that there's absolutely no way that the people are going to go back. They're not going to be kicked around the way the Taliban kicked them around back in the day. That was a broken country, several years of civil war, 
several years of war with the Russians. That's not what Afghanistan is like now. Kabul, I used to say Kabul was the, was the, was the one bright spot between the Mediterranean Sea and the outskirts of New Delhi. Kabul was a great place to be. Crazy place, wonderful, mental, totally nutty city, but so much hope and so much life. People are just shell-shocked right now, Jonathan. They're just gobsmacked. Nobody ever anticipated a betrayal this cynical. It's amazing what they've done in 20 years. There's millions and millions of Afghan girls that are going to school, running for office, holding office. Hell of a thing to accomplish in 20 years. After 70, 80 years, we've still got, you know, Yanks have still got 26, 30,000 soldiers in Italy. They got about as many in South Korea 70 years after the end of the, the Korean War. There was no Marshall Plan for Afghanistan. But my faith remains with the people, the people of Afghanistan. I think they're great. I think they wor they're worth fighting for, they're worth dying for, and they're worth killing for. And I know I'm in the minority, but you know what? I'm used to it. Terry Glavin is the author of, among other books, Come from the Shadows, The Long and Lonely Struggle for Peace in Afghanistan. Thanks so much for being on the Quillette Podcast. Hope I made some sense, Jonathan. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.